turn to Psalm 32. Several years ago, I had a just a really random event kind of take place in a very unlikely uh, situation. So it was such a powerful uh, transaction that kind of took place that I, I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget it. And it all got started. I was just, it was a morning. I was out running. And uh, as it would be, running isn't as pretty for me as it once was, maybe. So I have to go out in the country where people can't watch me, all right? So I'm out there running, and, and there's like no one out there, okay? You get the occasional car on this little country road where I go, uh, stray dog every once in a while, seen some coyotes, seen a couple fox. That's pretty cool. But you never see people walking, and that particular day out in the distance, I'm seeing this guy, and he's, he's walking. And uh, so I, I, I go to a little fence post, I turn around, and uh, I make my way back home. And so I see him coming, and he's coming in the direction we're going to cross. And so I just say, hey, you know, and I kind of, as I'm running there, and I, I finally get to my fence post, I turn around, and I, and I see him. And I'm kind of watching him from a distance as I'm gaining on him. And he had taken his shirt off, and, and he was walking kind of strange. Like, his, every once in a while, his legs would go out like this, you know, and he's just, and then as I get closer, you see his head's down, and, and he's wearing boots, you know. So it was obviously he hadn't planned on going to walk like this. And so I kind of get that impression. You know how God, like, impresses you, like, you need to talk to this person? So I'm like, okay, well, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. So I get up to him. I want to startle him say, hey, you know, my name's Grant, and I just kind of stick out my hand. And he looks at me, and so he decides that he'd shake my hand. So we do so. And I said, hey, what, what's, what's going on? Is there something going on with you? And he goes, and he's like, ah, I, I'm just heading home. And he told me that he asked his boss to get off from work. He's pretty discouraged, and he thought this was a shortcut. And I was like, well, this is not the shortcut you're thinking of. You know what I'm saying? So uh, we're talking a little bit. I'm just asking questions, trying to get to know him, trying to figure out what's going on. Then he asked me, are you religious? And I said, well, I'm, I'm a Christian, and I'm a follower of Jesus. And he stops. And then he feels like he's just going to start telling me what's going on in his life. And he talks about how his family had uh, immigrated here from Mexico, but uh, it, life had been hard, and he'd made life hard on himself. Um, he was involved with drinking and drugs, uh, had some gang involvement. He'd done some bad things. Um, he had two kids. This is a young guy, both out of wedlock. And uh, the one thing he was really proud of, though, is he finally got his GED. But uh, life kind of continued to spiral downward for him. And so he, uh, he asked his aunt, who apparently goes to a church, and said, can I come with you? And, of course, she was very happy that, of course, you can come with me. So she, they set up the Sunday for him to, to go to church. She picked him up, but uh, he'd been out drinking and doing whatever that night. And so he's pretty hungover. But nonetheless, the aunt was pretty persistent that we're going to go to church because he asked, right? So here we go, loads him up. And they, they go, and he hears this pastor, and this pastor presents the gospel and about the importance of believing in Jesus. And he's like, I did that. So I, I placed my faith in Jesus. And like people in the church prayed for him. He says, man, I felt a tremendous amount of peace but that's when life even got harder and there was all this pressure and people were down on him and life was hard. And, and so he apparently had done some bad things enough to get arrested, uh, spent some time in jail. Charges were later dropped. And this is where I find this guy. He says, I'm, I'm so discouraged. 
I just asked my boss if I could just take the day off, and I'm, I'm just heading home. He told me about his, his parents. His parents, for the last three months, had been starting to go to church. And his mom says, Mom had apparently become a Christian. He says, man, she's just different. But he is completely discouraged. What do you do when you're a Christian and you kind of just start falling off the wagon and you just get involved in the very sin that God saved you from? What are you supposed to do when you've grown distant or cool toward God? Uh, no longer the, fame, the, the flame of zeal is there and you're just kind of going through the motions. Or you don't care. You've grown complacent. What are Christians to do when they fall into sin? As we've been making our way through the book of Romans, we came to Romans 13, 13 last week. And you remember, it says, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, and not in strife and jealousy. Because after all, we've been redeemed by grace, we are united with Christ. We walk in the day. We don't walk in those sins. But what happens when you do? What happens if you've engaged in sin as a believer? What are you to do? You know, it'd be really cool if once you placed your faith in Christ, you never sinned again. Wouldn't that be awesome? But that's not the case, is it? Not for the guy standing up here and not for you. So what are we to do? Well, that's why Psalm 32 is so critically important. This is a psalm written by King David, the shepherd king. David wrote over half of the psalms in the Bible, but this, I've got to believe, was one of his favorites, where the Spirit of God moves him to write down his experiences, his experiences in some of the most difficult times in his life when he had sinned dramatically and drastically. And where he found hope, renewal, and forgiveness. They say that uh, an idle life is the devil's workshop. You ever heard that? There is a guy in the Bible that would agree completely with you. And that would be David himself. Uh, Psalm 32 is written after some of the most difficult, painful, sinful, horrendous events that took place in David's life. David, this Men of God, David that knew like military victories where we literally saw God do some amazing work. David, who is leading the people militarily, politically, even spiritually. And yet some terrible events took place in his life. You see, David, certainly in the second half of life, uh, fought a lot of wars. Generally, wars were fought seasonally and uh, as it would be, uh, it was time for David to go back out and fight. In fact, they had a war going on with the Ammonites, and uh, David decided, you know, I'm going to sit this one out. You know, I've done a lot of fighting. I'm tired. Everybody needs a break and, a, and a, an extended vacation, and I'm going to take one, so I'm, I'm going to sit this one out. You guys go. I'm going to hang out at the palace. And so he does, and, and he tries to rest and relax. And I'm sure for the few, first few days, it was probably good to be able to sleep in, kind of do what you want, and... You know, he's getting a little bored, so what do you do? You kind of check out every place in town where the good food is. You kind of hang out. But he was growing more and more bored. He's not doing what he's supposed to do. Kings are supposed to lead in battle, and he's hanging out. And so one evening, he's walking around the top of his palace, and he's, he can oversee everything that's going on. And he looks, and there in the courtyard, of, he sees this woman bathing right by her house. And instead of like going, this is not something I should be 
check it out. He fully engages. In fact, he is drawn to this woman. And he tells his attendant, servant, listen, you need to go and bring that gal to me. And like the attendant goes, I, uh, <laughs> wait a second. That is Bathsheba. Um, your servant, Uriah the Hittite, the guy who's out there fighting all the battles right now, that she belongs to him. No. Uh, he goes, bring her to me. And he doesn't just want to have a casual conversation and drink a little bit of iced tea on the top of his courtyard. Uh, not only invite her in, but he commits adultery with her. And I'm sure it seemed very alluring. I would imagine Bathsheba is a very beautiful woman. And after all the excitement and the thrill of that time has passed, he uh, sends her away after her ritual purification. She goes back and he thinks, you know what? It's all good. No one knows. I'm the king. I got it. A while later, uh, he get, receives a note. It happens to be from Bathsheba. And in this sealed note, it's, he's informed that she is pregnant and now with child. All of a sudden, David's world's beginning to unravel. He's like, oh my, what in the world am I going to do? I've got to deal with this situation. I have to address it. He's thinking, he's a smart guy, clever. Comes, oh, got it. I got it. I'm going to have Uriah come and give me a report on how the battle's going. So he sends for Uriah the Hittite to come to give a report on how the war's going with the Ammonites. And, and sure enough, he shows up. He says, hey, listen, we're having a banquet, kind of you're in honor. Fill me in on all the details. Well, they do. They have the banquet afterwards. He says, you know, it's getting late. You need to go and visit your wife. You know, go spend the night. Relax. Thank you. And he sends her send him home. Well, the next morning, he, uh, David gets up. He's going to get the newspaper. He's going to get the Jerusalem Times. He opens the front door. And lo and behold, there's some guys sitting right there at the doorstep. Whoa. It's Uriah, the Hittite. What are you doing, man? I sent you home. There's no way. I, all of the men, my comrades, they're in battle. No way. There's an attack on our kingdom. There's no way that I'm going to go and spend the night with my wife. Not with my comrades facing battle today. No. It's, this is not working. Hey, you know what? There's a few more things I want to talk with you about. I'll tell you what. Come on. Come tonight. We're going to have another party. And uh, let's talk. And this time, you can just even see the mechanisms in his mind twisting and turning. Like, ah, you know, he actually gets him drunk. You know, the Bible never glosses over our sin. And he gets Uriah the Hittite drunk. Okay, he's intentionally doing this. And then he sends him home, but guess what? Uriah doesn't go. He keeps sleeping at the doorstep of the king because he's a faithful servant. David's like, this is not working. So he does this. He schemes and plans. He goes, I'm going to write a note to the commander of my armies and to say, I want you to make an aggressive attack. And I want you to put Uriah the Hittite at the very front of it. And in the heat of the battle, pull back. And let's just see what happens. Well, sure enough, they do just that. And a while later, a note comes, a sealed from note from the commander at the battle. And he reports this attack is a very aggressive and foolish attack right up to the walls. He starts listing some of the key guys that got killed. And David's like, that was stupid. Why would you ever do that? No one in their right mind would attack like that. And then P.S. Uriah the Hittite is also dead. And David just takes it all in. Well, Bathsheba starts grieving for her husband who's now dead. And when that's all done, when she's done grieving, 
David's like, you know what, I'm going to fix this. I'll marry her. And he does. He brings her into his harem of wives, and he marries her. And for about a year, David lives with the idea that he got away with it. But there's a turning inside him and a turmoil, and his conscience will not lay rest, and there's this guilt and this tremendous feeling of disgust in his own life. You know, he's the leader, right? But if you're the leader and you're in sin, what do you got to do? You got to fake it, right? So he's going through the motions. He's singing the songs. He's kind of leading out. He's acting all holy, but inside, man, it's a wretched mess. It's in the context of these events that David writes Psalm 32 and explains where you and I find hope when we fall into sin. Look at it. Psalm 32. It actually begins with the superscription. You see those little words there? They're written really small. A Psalm of David, a masculine. That actually is verse 1 in the Hebrew Scriptures. And a masculine means a teaching psalm. It's didactic. It's meant to teach you a lesson. And David wants us to understand that God truly can forgive sin. Even the grossest sin that you might be able to come up with. And so look what he says in verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. And he starts listing off these roadblocks to intimacy with God. First one he says in verse 1, he says it's, it's transgression. And that has the idea of going away, a departure. It's a rebellion. It's a willful, God, I don't want you in my way. I want to do my own program. Please stay out. It's a transgression. You call me to the path of righteousness. I think I'd like to go some other direction. He says, how blessed. Literally, it's kind of like the, how, like the Sermon on the Mount begins. How joyful, how happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. The word forgiven has, is the word that would be used to carry away guilt. To be released from threat or punishment. David says, man, I know this firsthand. Listen to me. Whose sin, okay? This is the Hebrew word kata'ah. It's to mean to miss the perfect mark. So whether it was used for archers, and if they would shoot at a target or at a game, at an animal, if they missed the precise perfect mark, it was kata'ah. So the Bible adopts that same word. And you and I were created to know God, to enjoy God, to walk with Him to know his peace, to know his love, to know his forgiveness. But we have kata'ah, right? Missed it. And so he says, man, how good, how blessed is the one whose sin is, for transgression is covered, whose sin is covered. That word covered brings to mind uh, the atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would take lamb, uh, blood from the sacrificial lamb and he'd sprinkle it on top of the Ark of the Covenant. It was to represent that God was covering the sins of Israel, that there had been a sacrifice, but it was a picture to a perfect sacrifice, a perfect lamb that one day would take away all the sins. But once a year, for all the sins of Israel, the high priest would go in and he would sprinkle this blood. And he says, I want you to know how good it is whose sin is covered. Verse 2, How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Iniquity has the idea of being corrupt or twisted, or deceitful, or perverse, and to impute, he says, how blessed is he who God does not account. He doesn't count me twisted anymore. He doesn't impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit, self-deception. For that's what David was all about. And he says, how good it is 
to be forgiven, to know this at the very depth of your being. It's really interesting. The uh, young man that I was talking with, we we're just kind of walking and talking and had a real good conversation. He, uh, he told me, like, I expected, I thought that when I believe in Jesus that life would get easier. And I'm like, huh, why would you expect that? That's not how it works. You see, when you're in the domain of darkness, you're in Satan's camp, he's got you, man. Life, of course, is, he's not, you're not a threat. You go ahead and sin, do whatever you want. But once you trust in Jesus, you, God has permanently put you and united you with Christ. Now Satan is going to seek to make your life miserable. Okay? He can't rob you of eternal life because it's secured in Jesus. But you know what he can do? He can rob you of joy, peace, happiness, perspective. He can literally rob you of the things that are of great value in your life. Now you might be thinking like, okay, so the guy you met, that younger guy, I can't relate to maybe all of his sins. David, adultery, murder, wow, massive deceit, hypocrisy. Not sure I can relate to all of those. Really? What if we... uh, what if it was possible if we saw life from God's perspective and we took you and put a picture of you and what God knows, your sin, the most heinous ones, were actually listed there, starting with me. <laughs> I mean, it would just be an unraveling and just such a disturbing experience. But you need to know. Let me tell you some things that would be there. We'd find that uh, we're sitting by people who... Slandered others. There's been fornication, gossip, stealing, adultery, drug abuse, violence, lying, pornography, vulgarity, abandonment, drunkenness, walked away from God, jealous, anger out of control. And they'd be there. And so what do you do when sin has once again started to ravage your life? You see, sin is always the enemy. It's the enemy before we came to Christ. Sin is enemy even after, and it, after we trust in Him. And it has an effect on our life. So what are we to do? Well, that's why this psalm is so important, because David shows us exactly how we're to handle it. When the poison of sin has ravaged our life, first of all, we must take our sin to God readily. Take our sin to God readily. Let me give you an equation. A Holy Spirit indwelt person plus unholy sin involvement in your life equals a violent reaction. It's similar to like if we were to take some baking soda. Remember, remember like science class? And you have this baking soda, and then you take an acid like vinegar, and you pour it into the baking soda, and what do you got? You got this reaction. It bubbles all over, right? It makes a huge mess. Do you remember that in science class? I love those things. That was really cool. Or if you really want to have some, some entertainment uh, for your next little family night, family gathering, get a two-liter of Coca-Cola and some of those Mentos mints, and you put some of those menthos mints in the two-liter, and you will have like the reenactment of the of old faithful, man. It'll go shooting all over your kitchen. Your kids will think like, wow, you're really cool. That is really neat. Friends, that's what sin is like in the life of a believer. You take it in, there is a violent reaction. Because God has sealed you with his Holy Spirit. Sin creates this just turmoil and tension. There is a violent reaction that takes place. And so David says, let me tell you what it's like. Verse 3, when I kept silent about my sin, I didn't say anything. I didn't talk to God about it. My body wasted 
away. You literally lose physical stamina and vitality. When you will not take your sin to God, when you keep silent about it, it affects you physically. Furthermore, he says, through my groaning all day long. It's like there's these involuntarily, you know what I'm talking about? David says, oh, this was my experience. Verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I was like literally drained away. He's speaking of the Sirocco heat, the, the sun that would just like bake bricks. It's like kind of like being in central Texas, you know? It's going to get 110 real soon. I know everybody's been hanging out in their backyard. That's going to change real soon, right? You remember, like, you're going to be pushing your lawnmower. It's 110 out there, and you're just like melting, right? You're just dissolving right there because it is so hot, and it is so oppressive. Well, friends, that's what it's like when you simply won't take your sin to God readily. It literally just wears you down. It makes life heavy. It seems difficult, if not impossible. And David says, I know this from firsthand experience. And notice the word salah. You see that? It, it's a uh, annotation for music, and it means to pause, to reflect, and remember. And so David is salah, thinking about, oh, how terrible I felt. You see, sin is alluring. And it kind of like gives the promise that this will be fun. You'll feel more fulfilled. This will bring you happiness. And after all, it's all about your happiness, Right? It's kind of like, um, you know, the, the cleaning liquids, like Drano and Windex. You, you ever notice that they are all, like, really colorful when we put them in really colorful bottles? And, of course, we don't want our children drinking that stuff, right? But yet we make it about as attractive as possible. To a little kid, that looks like a lot of fun. And then we put them, like, at the lower shelf, kind of where they're crawling, right underneath the sink, right? They open it up like, ah, oh, there's the magic potions, right? And they see that and they want that. But, of course, if they drink it, what happens? Oh, make them real sick. It could kill them. If this is news for you, you need to hear this. And so what do we do? Well, we tell them, no, 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 no. But we've made it as colorful and attractive and as alluring as possible. Friends, that's what sin is like. It tells you, you this is going to be good. You're going to have the best 30 minutes of your life. This is going to be awesome. Don't think about consequences. But, friends, sin is like that. Yeah, it may be initially pleasurable. You might have a little bit of fun with that, but let me assure you, it's going to have huge, difficult effects in your life, just like David describes. You enter into sin, David's experience becomes your experience. And it's like, you need to know that David was not a youth when this happened. This is kind of like at the second half of life. He kind of grown complacent. He sees young people, they're, they're fervor for the Lord, and they worship with zeal, and and, man, they are into it, and they are sharing their faith, and they're walking with God. And like, ah, oh, that's just being young, young, yeah, yeah. I'm way past it. I'm more mature than that. Wrong. Actually, complacency is an extremely dangerous place to be. You need to know that when you and I sin, we choose to sin. Don't be playing the victim thing. Uh-uh. Don't, you can't say that. I couldn't help myself. Wrong. Actually, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God makes it real clear. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful. You're going to face sin. Everybody faces sin. I face sin. You face sin. No one gets an exempt card on this. But God is faithful, 
who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. You need to know every temptation, there is always an escape route. You can walk out, change the channel, turn it off, leave, go outside, call a friend. There is always a way to escape. Clear. God is faithful, right? We, at that point, choose to like sin more than we are to love God. And that's a huge problem. And you need to know that uh, when you and I engage in sin, there are consequences for that. There, there may not be eternal consequences in the sense like you don't lose your salvation when you sin. But there are earthly consequences. David paid a pretty heavy price on some of this stuff. You and I, you treating sin lightly? You're engaged and involved in some things that you know you shouldn't be? Don't forget Galatians 6, 7 and 8, where it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. You sow to the Spirit. You will experience the fruit of the Spirit. You do the things that walk with God and cultivate holiness and lead to worship and praise and service. These things yield fruit in your life, fruit that is enjoyable, not only in your life and pleasant, but in the lives of others. But make no mistake, you sow to the flesh, these yearnings, these personal desires that you and I face that want to do what is wrong, think we can get away with it, right? It's going to come home to roost, and it's going to show up. And friends, you got a flesh that's still drawn to what is unholy. you got a whole culture, the world literally is calling you to get back in vogue, back to the vibe of life independent from God. And, and it's a culture. And, it, and it, the more you just immerse yourself in the culture, you're like, what do you mean? I'm like, following God? Why would I want to do that? Because everybody else is not. I'd rather do all these things. This is what really means to me. This is important to everybody else. It should be important to me. And you just got to get swept into the current. David knows firsthand what that looks like. You see, it's kind of like this. It's like we have this like, little pilot light. And when you have natural gas, remember like on your stove? You turn the gas on, what happens? Right? You got a flame. You engage in the temptation. You enter into that sin. Ignites. There's all sorts of implications. It, it affects you spiritually. It's like, man, there's something not right with my heart, my soul. You feel heavy. It affects you emotionally. It affects you relationally. There is breakdown in relationship. You're fighting with everybody. You're always in a bad mood. And it affects you physically. Why? Because that is the nature of sin. And David says, that is my life. But look at the turning of a life. Look at verse 5. But David says, I acknowledged my sin to you. And my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. He says, I am going to acknowledge, Yada, I'm going to make known, I'm going to actually tell you, God, what you already know, but I'm going to speak my sin to you. I'm going to tell you about it, what I did. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have to necessarily ask for forgiveness to whoever you may have injured. If your sin 
has been a sin against another individual, you need to go and approach them and tell them and tell them you're sorry and ask for forgiveness. But first and foremost, sin is always against God because you were created to know him, to live with him, to experience his joy and his grace, to walk away from that. That means first and foremost, any sin is a sin against God. And so David says, but you know what? I finally came to my senses and I acknowledged it. I confessed. The the word of confess has the idea of to say the same thing. I agree with you, God, that what I did is wrong. It's not holy. It's not right. It's not righteous. And you see that in verse 5 where he says, I acknowledged. Some people say like, okay, I'll admit that I'm a sinner. And they do so like after they've been caught, right? Right? And it's like, all right, you got me. Yeah, I was doing that or watching this. I, sh- I shouldn't have. I- you got me caught. I admit I was sinning. That's not what we're talking about here. Verse 5, there's a major difference between admitting and confessing. When you confess sin, you tell God, this is what I did. And there's a brokenness about you, a remorse, a repentance. I don't want to do this again. This is sick in my life, and this is, this is not you. It's caused all sorts of breakdown, breakdown in my fellowship. God, I am sorry. And notice what David says, and he forgave the guilt of my sin. David did some really wretched, wicked stuff, and he says, I've been forgiven. That, how cool is that? In fact, he writes, Selah again. Pause. Think about it. This is so good. This is my life. And look at verse 6. He says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Everyone of you who's godly, pray now. Don't wait. Pray now while you may be found. Because surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. In a time where there is a flood of judgment, it's like, not. don't wait for that. Pray now. Speak to God now. This is coming from a guy who has very first-hand experience of sin and its detrimental effect. And notice this. He says, verse 7, You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. God, you're the one. You deliver my soul. In fact, you give me a song of deliverance. This is where joy. You protect me. Your eye is upon me. You love me. And so what do you do when you have entered into sin as a believer? Well, you need to take your sin to God readily. Don't wait. Just go directly to Him. One of the first verses I memorized as a, as a new believer back in college was 1 John 1, 9. For good reason. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Take your sin to God readily. And then, when you sin, don't miss how this psalm ends. It is a call to trust God willingly. And verse 8, there's something that's just rather dramatic. Theologians refer to this as called, that's called a divine oracle. Literally, God breaks in to the psalm. Whether this was Nathan the prophet that just shows up and he says, Thus saith the Lord, and David writes it down, but God breaks in. And so in this divine oracle, verse 8, he says, God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way in which you should go. You follow me, I'll do it. I'll instruct you, I'll teach you in the way you should go, and I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And he says, verse 9, 
Do not be as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Don't be like a horse that's just wildly running off and doing whatever it wants to do, or like a mule that is so stubborn, right? You're trying to get the mule to go. We're locked in. We're we're resisting. We're going to fight this all the way. Do you know the most formative time in a horse's life? is when they're being trained. And how this works is, you know, for the first couple of years, the horse is just kind of running wild, right? They may see other horses getting ridden, but not me, right? But then comes the day where they're going to be trained. And how you train horses is you develop trust. Where the horse learns to trust the master. And so that's what they do. There's a trust relationship that is developed between the rider and the horse. But if a horse is prone to throw the rider off, biting, Uh, all sorts of bad behavior that horses are fully capable of, that tells you that more training is needed. And when God breaks in, he says, don't be like a mule kicking in stubborn, I want to do it my way, or a horse like, I'm running wild. God says, I want you to know my goodness. I need you to trust me. You see that? I need you to follow my lead. And so David says, This, my friends, is where life is found. And so he concludes this psalm in verses 10 and 11. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness, shall surround him. You see that? If you trust in the Lord, you're surrounded by loving kindness. Why Why are you fighting? Why not just eagerly, earnestly, give your life and follow his lead in your life? You see, his loving kindness, it'll surround you. He is a safe place. Yeah, who cares what people are thinking? It doesn't matter. What matters is between me and you. Trust me. And so verse 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. He's like literally yelling out and crying out at the end of the psalm, This is where life is because this is where grace is. It's found in God. And so friends, no wonder David is shouting. The past is forgiven. The present is joyful and the future is secure because it is secured by God. And you and I, we are so, such a good thing that we are living in this time. For Jesus has already come. We, we're not just looking at a covering for sin like once a year. Christ, the perfect sacrifice, literally gives himself up for us. He bears our sins in his body on the cross. He pays for it in full. We don't have a covering. we got atonement. we got propitiation. It has been dealt with. Sin has been settled because Christ has done it. And we find real life forgiveness. In fact, he even gives us his very spirit that dwells in our lives. That's why he calls us to trust him. Let me show you just how deep relationship with Christ is. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 22 and 23, he talks about the new covenant of what it means to be in relationship with Christ. And listen to these words. Let us draw near with a sincere, a genuine heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Get that? Your heart, evil conscience, it's been sprinkled clean. You don't have to live like that anymore because Jesus is taking care of that. And let me even tell you this. And our bodies washed with pure water. You know those wretched things you did with your body? Guess what? God says, I'll even wash your body with pure water. I'm going to make you completely clean. That's why he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You hold fast because God 
is faithful. Well, you remember the young man that uh, we met on the run? Well, we had a pretty long walk, and we uh, made our way to a fence, and there's this oak tree and kind of around this bend here. And I said, hey, did you, you want to just talk with God about this? He said, I, I, don't, I don't know how to pray. I said, sure you do. All you do is you tell God what's going on in your heart. He looks at me, and I haven't been around a guy who prayed with this kind of drive and earnest. He starts pleading God. We're out there in the country, but he's pretty much yelling this. God help me. God help me. I got I got two kids. I, I got a family. You gotta you gotta guide me. And let me assure you, God surely will. See, friends, when the sin has weighed us down, only the grace of God can lift us up lift us up. And your sin, guess what? That's not the end of the story. Do you know why? Because the Savior is the beginning of it. So when sin has weighed you and I down, you know what we need to do? We need to go to God. Because it's in His grace we can be lifted up. Let's pray. Lord, I, I come before you with my dear friends. And you've got our full attention. And what an amazing psalm. To not only understand just how deeply sin can affect us and distort us, but to realize the grace that is found in Christ. And if there's someone who has come here today who has never really, truly trusted in Jesus, would they just simply pray with me and say, God, I turn from self and my sin. I need Jesus. I need renewal. I need help. I need hope. I need guidance. And so I trust you. And Father, for all of us, may the pattern of our life not be rationalizing or ignoring sin, but just to come to you readily, to know that we are safe and secure in your arms, that forgiveness is always available because it's been secured by the finished work of Jesus, that we can never lose our salvation, that you love us unconditionally. So help us to experience the joy of our salvation. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen.